I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 10. Judges chapter 10, we're going to cover a few things and we'll be in the two different sections of the book of Judges this morning. We're looking at primarily the minor judges. Um, and just as a reminder of where we've been and what we're doing here, this, we've seen time and time again this downward spiral might even call this plunge into sin and depravity that the people of Israel have fallen into. Israel's been partaking in this depravity and continuing to really pick up speed and strength as, as the book progresses. It's like this Category 5 hurricane, right, where Israel's sin continues to grow, expanding into new spheres even inventing new evils and causing catastrophic damage along the way. And so the Lord has continued to raise up judges who represent these men of exemplary faith and military strength. And Gideon, as we most recently saw, was such a man, but then his ending was so disheartening. It left a legacy of idolatry and ultimately led to the reign of his son, Abimelech, who really is an anti-judge, the opposite of what the judges were, which was saviors, he, from within Israel, becomes one of the oppressors. And so it leads us to judge coming on the scene. It seems like it's going to just be another catastrophic flood narrative right, where everyone's just wiped out. If Abimelech is the anti-judge who represents the fact that oppression can come from within the covenant community, just as it can come from outside the covenant community, where do we go from here? That's the question that we face as we begin chapter 10. So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that every time we open your word, we have this privilege of sitting under this truth, being challenged being in, encouraged, being edified. Lord, we know that if you do not work by your Spirit as we sit under this preaching, then, then it will be fruitless. We need to have eyes to see the truth. We need to have ears to hear it. We need to have hearts that are softened to receive this in the way that you intend it to be received. And that might be in various ways for the people present. Some of us do need to be convicted. Some of us need to be comforted. Really, all of us need to hear the gospel. But the gospel will have its various impacts upon our lives <clears throat> by the work of your Spirit. And so, Father, we ask that you would cause us to be attentive, remove the distractions from our minds, help us to focus now on your word. And open us to the truth of this text, that we might be transformed. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So read with me, Judges chapter 10, we'll look at verses 1 through 16, and then we'll jump ahead to chapter 12 and look at verses 8 through 15. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, 
a man of Issachar, and he lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years, and called Havoth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Canaan. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, and the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Moanites oppressed you. And you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. We'll jump ahead to chapter 12, beginning in verse 8. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. He gave in marriage outside his clan, and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons, and he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel, and he judged Israel 10 years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Aijalon in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Perithonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Perithonite, died and was buried at Pirithon in the land of Ephraim, in the hill country of the Amalekites. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, we're going to begin by looking at these minor judges, and I, we call them minor, not because they're unimportant or insignificant, but because of the amount of ink that they receive in Scripture. There's just not a lot that we know about them, um, and so because of that, they're called minor judges, much like the minor prophets in comparison to the major prophets. Right? You have just less content in their writings, um, and so you actually have to go back to chapter 3 
verse 31, to see our first minor judge. It was Shamgar. And uh, verse chapter 3, 31 says, After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. What's interesting about Shamgar is it's, it seems most likely as a son of Anath that he was not Israelite. It's a non-Israelite name. So God used a non-Israelite in the form of a judge to save Israel from their oppressors. Um, the next one is Tola in chapter 10. Verses 1 and 2. Tola, on the opposite end, has a prominent pedigree. His, father's, his ancestors are mentioned here. So it seems like his name would be recognized by the people and his family heritage um, would, would cause him to stand out as a prominent figure in Israel. Jair, it says, has 30 sons, 30 donkeys who oversee 30 cities. Now, when you have that many children, the only possible explanation is that he must have multiplied wives, much like Gideon did at the end of his life. And so they're following in that same trajectory here, at least Jair was, who would have been a a polygamist, had multiple wives, who then has 30 sons riding on donkeys that oversee the cities. Come back to that point about donkeys. Um, Then you jump ahead to chapter 12. And you look at verses 8 through 10, and you come to the name Ibzin, Judge Ibzin, much like Jair. We learn he has 30 sons and 30 daughters. Um, And this is, in fact, going to contrast because it follows the story of Jephthah, who has just one daughter. And, in fact, he makes a vow that we'll have to understand what he was doing there in that chapter uh, so some would say he has no children by the end of chapter 11. Um, we'll, I'll leave that for, for next, next time. But uh, Ibzin has 30 sons and 30 daughters, and it's a contrast. He's got multiple um, children. And then Elon, mostly unknown. There's very little that's said about him there. Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel. He judged for 10 years. You know where he died and was buried. And, uh, and then finally, Abdon, who has 40 sons and 30 grandsons, all of them whom are riding on 70 donkeys. So let's first of all recognize one thing. God can bring deliverance through disciples, those who are within the covenant community, or even those who are without from pagans. He can... Save through unknowns or well-knowns, people who have a prominent name and those who have no name. He can bring deliverance through the wealthy or the poor. He can bring deliverance through singles or even polygamous. So what's the, the, the point about donkeys here? I think it, it, it's helpful to, to consider the symbolism here, or, or not even symbolism, but, but what, what they what it acknowledges by talking about them riding on donkeys. Maybe you're aware of this, but it was, it was new to me back in seminary. Um, donkeys represent wealth. They represent civil authority. And they represent luxurious modes of travel back then. You say, yeah, right. But that is what they represent. And, and in fact, as you look through the book of Judges, the people that you find riding on donkeys are the leaders. In chapter uh, 1, 
verse 14 is the first reference we have, and it's Caleb's daughter. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you want? And she said, give me a blessing. This is when he is, uh, Caleb gives his daughter to Othniel and, uh, as the first judge uh, for defeating their oppressors. And, and so she's riding on a donkey to him to ask for an additional blessing, to, to receive a place that has water, right? not just a dry land, but a place that would have water. Uh, chapter 5, verse 10, in the song of Deborah and Barak, we read, tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. So those who have white donkeys, it's representative of, of the royalty, of those who are, who are wealthy. Uh, chapter 10, verse 4, is what we read already. Um, for Jair, in chapter 12, verse 14, you have another one in um, uh, Abdon the mention of donkeys, and then again in chapter 19, verse 3, we read, um, then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back, and he had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. So again, all of these representing a wealthy household. If you had donkeys, you were you were traveling in luxury, you had wealth, and it's very possible that you also had some sort of prominent position within your region of leadership. Horses, on the other hand, represent symbols of military might, and we've also seen that in the book of Judges. The same song of Deborah and Barak, chapter 5, verse uh, 22, we read, then the loud beats of the horse Horses' hoofs with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. And you have these chariots of horses, right? You have these iron chariots that are, that are driven by horses. So if a, if a military is filled with horses, then it's re- recognized as being a strong military. They were used for war. Um, in fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 16, it, 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 it restricts kings of Israel from gathering for themselves many horses, Right? Because then they would trust in their military. They would trust in their horses rather than trusting in God. And Psalm 33 verse 17 says the exact same thing. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by it great might, by its great might, it cannot rescue. Right? So who does the rescuing? Who does the saving? It's God. It's not your military might. It's not your horses. And so there is a reference here, I think, some, some insight into Jesus' coming. Because how does Jesus come the first time? He comes in peace. He comes riding on a donkey. In fact, it's the, the colt, the child of a donkey, right? The, the foal of a donkey that he rides. Um, and, and that represents the peace in Matthew chapter 21. But how does he come in Revelation? In Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, his final return, he comes in military might riding upon a white horse. And so it speaks of his peace, his coming to rescue and save his people in his first coming and his coming to judge the nations, those who reject him in his second coming. So these minor judges, they remind us of a couple of things. They're, 
there were many cycles. We've seen these cycles in the major judges um, of rebellion and salvation. And maybe you feel like your own cycles of rebellion will never cease. Right? In fact, the minor judges point out that there's even more than we've considered. Right? There's more people that we don't have the time to tell the full story of, as the narrator doesn't give us any more information than he does. Every time, though, that you maybe in your own life experience victory over sin, every time a, a judge here brings salvation and rescue from the oppressors, it seems like it's followed immediately on the hills of death and more idolatry. We don't, don't we experience the same thing? Every time you experience victory over sin, you experience a fall soon afterwards. And you begin to wonder, is there any hope? If there is one characteristic of God that's made crystal clear in this text, in this book, it's his remarkable patience with sinners. Right? After oppression and sorrow, God continually grants his people mercy and joy and blessing. He restores the blessings that have been stolen from them, really that they've forsaken because of their idolatry. But we see in, back in chapter 10, verses 6 through 9, that God's patience can wear out. It does wear out. Verse 6, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So there's this lure of Baal and Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria, Sidon, Moab, Ammonites, and Philistines. All of these gods now are, are gods that have been brought into the camp, brought into the Israelite covenant community that they might worship. And at this point, it would seem that they're not even worshiping them alongside Yahweh, alongside the, the one true Lord. It seems like they've forsaken him altogether and they've just brought in every kind of idol that they could find to begin to worship. The progression of idolatry here is obvious, right? This is the first time where, it's lit, where seven different idols Seven different foreign gods are listed. And you know the number is probably important there. Seven being a number of completion. There's probably even more than seven that they've brought in uh, to their camp to worship. And they've forsaken the one true God. And it seems they're no longer keeping in any semblance of their faith in the Lord. Verses seven through nine, you see how the Lord responds to this. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. He, he passes them once again, sells them into the hands of oppressors. So the Philistines and the Ammonites oppressed them for 18 years. Again, we're following in that same cycle, that same pattern that we've seen. So the oppression that followed their idolatry was precisely what God used to preserve their faith. Now, we've said this a few times already, <clears throat> that God was actually preserving their faith by allowing them to be oppressed, because if he didn't, why wouldn't they just continue to add more and more gods, more and more false gods? 
if he never brought discipline into their lives, they would have just become even more corrupt. They would have compounded the sins of Abimelech. And so it is a grace from God because idols left to themselves will begin to change who we are. If we continue to worship idols, we become like them. That's the truth of Psalm 135. In fact, um, I've been browsing uh, this new hymnal that came out, the Trinity Psalter hymnal. And I looked, I wanted to see how it phrases this psalm, and I, I thought it was excellent. You can look at the verses on your own, Psalm 135, I believe it's verses 13 through 17 or 18. Um, but it's summarized here in, in the fourth verse of that Psalter of Psalm 135. It reads this, your name, O Lord, forever endures. Through every age, your fame is sure. The Lord, his people will defend and great compassion shows to them. The gods of gold are made by hand, their mouths can't breathe. Their eyes are blind, their ears are deaf, their mouths are dumb, all trusting them like them become. We become like the gods we worship. We become deaf and dumb and mute. You know, we, we, we become spiritually ignorant. And so it should be shocking and heartbreaking to see this cycle repeat itself over and over again. And yet at the same time, in the back of our head, we're thinking, that's me. I, I, I fall like that too. To various degrees, we all struggle with this kind of cycle. But it seems here that Israel has become so flippant, so quick to turn their backs upon God as soon as a judge dies. And so Jeremiah, he was utterly appalled by the depravity of Israel. We read in chapter 2 of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 2, verses 11 through 12, has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? Have you forsaken the one true God for a bunch of false gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate. That's the appropriate response. Right, to the recognition of idolatry, it's to be appalled. It's to be heartbroken, to be shocked. And despite Israel's downward spiral into sin, the 18 years of affliction that God brought upon them through the Philistines and the Ammonites actually proves his steadfast love and covenant faithfulness to them. That he hasn't forsaken them. The fact that he's bringing them affliction is for their good. In, verse, in Psalm 119, verse 75, I know, the, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. In faithfulness you have afflicted me. It's to preserve my faith. It's to keep me faithful. It's to humble me before your sovereign hand. That affliction has come into my life. And so in the end, it was for their good. And yet, 
we still have this glimmer of hope in chapter 10, verses 10 through 16. Because we see them crying out to the Lord. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. But once again, this is a cycle we've seen before. We've seen the same words multiple times prior to this. So is this true repentance? They cry out, but God responds with a history lesson. He reminds them. The Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Ammonites and from, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? I'm sorry, from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites and the Philistines, the Sidonians and the Amalekites, the Manites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. In fact, most of these names are the same gods that they've been worshiping. The ones who, who have brought oppression upon them are the, are the gods that they've adopted. It's absurd. They should know by now that these gods are not saving them. They're not bringing them any good. And yet they continue to turn to them. And so God says, why don't you cry out to those gods? Why don't you let them save you? If those are the ones you want to worship. So Israel cries out again in verse 15. We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. So it seems like they're going a step beyond now. This is actually the first time we have any language about them putting away false gods. They put away the foreign gods from among them. Now, there is a question about what, whether <clears throat> just because it's the first time we read it, is it the first time they've actually done that? <clears throat> it could be implied by the way they've repented in the past. But it does seem to me that if it's a statement there that it's emphasizing something, it's emphasizing possibly a deeper level of repentance for the people of God. However, the second half of verse 16 is important because it says he became impatient over the misery of Israel. And that can be interpreted in a couple of different ways. Right? Is he impatient with his people? It might seem like that's where he's, where he's gone. And yet, we know what follows is another rescue, is another saving of his people. And so it seems to me that his impatience here is with their suffering. And that's what it says. He grew, became impatient over the misery of Israel. He's not impatient with the people. He's, in, he's, he's tired of watching them suffer. He can no longer bear the sight of their oppression. In other words, he's filled with compassion. we see once again his patience, his long-suffering, his steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness. So he relents not because of the quality of their repentance. As Matt mentioned in Sunday school, it's filled with many weaknesses. 
It's only a matter of time before we'll see how short-lived this repentance is as well. Chapter 16 of the Westminster Confession teaches us about that. That there is, that, that even our best works are filled with impurities, with imperfections. So it's not because of the quality of their repentance that God rescues them, but because he could no longer watch them suffer. Again, we see something similar in Isaiah 63, verses 9 and 10. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. He was so united with his people that when he saw them suffer, it caused him pain and affliction. Of course, that's that can be applied directly to the gospel. It's through the affliction of our Savior that we're redeemed. So in all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. He, he witnessed their affliction, and he responds to that with compassion and grace and mercy, not because they deserved it. Far from it. Dale Ralph Davis, I think, puts it, has some, a brilliant commentary on the book of Judges. In fact, it, it would be a great resource for you to get and read and, and use alongside our series here. I reference him almost every week. But he captures the theology that drove Israel, and, and it drives, I think, much of modern evangelicalism today, and maybe even present in some of us. He says, God is like a great, warm vending machine in the sky into which you need only drop a token or two of repentance before he spits out the relief you currently crave. Religion is a great game. You only need to know a few rules. And Yahweh is a great God if you happen to need him or want to use him. And so it's actually possible to despise God even as you seek his mercy. It would seem that that is the problem that Israel has here. They're so filled with a mixture of emotions and motives. Are they just simply wanting relief, temporary relief, so that they can go back into their idolatrous ways? Certainly some of them, many of them. And so, was was their repentance any deeper on this occasion? As I've said, I think it possibly was. But if we linger there too long, if we stay there, if we ask questions about that, if we say, well, was it sincere enough? Was it true repentance? Can we test the quality of their faith and their repentance? If we linger along those questions for too long, then I think we miss the point. Because God saves them, not because of the quality of their repentance, but because he is a compassionate God. And we know that about repentance. Repentance is a saving grace. It's a saving grace. Yes, repentance is, is a, having a true sense of your sin and a true apprehension of the mercy of God. There's a subjective aspect to that repentance, to the quality of that repentance. And yet, true repentance is always a work of God. It is always a gift it is a saving 
grace that only God can work in you. God grants repentance. In fact, in Acts chapter 11, we see that. Acts chapter eleven eighteen 18, in his saving of the Gentiles. That's the very language that we read. After hearing Peter's report to the church, when the church heard the saving of Cornelius' house, the saving of the Gentiles, they say this, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance. That leads to life. Again, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 25 through 26, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Again, the point there in both those verses is that it is God doing the work. God is the one granting true repentance. And so, again, Dale Ralph Davis puts it in a way that I I just want to quote for you. He says this, our hope does not rest in the sincerity of our repentance, but in the intensity of Yahweh's compassion. Our hope, our hope does not rest in the sincerity of our repentance. If that were the case, you would flounder every day with feeling assured one day, feeling, or even one moment, feeling a lack of assurance the next. Your hope cannot rest in the sincerity of your repentance, but in the intensity of Yahweh's compassion. That doesn't mean the sincerity of your repentance is insignificant, but it means that it will always be filled with imperfections. And your hope cannot rest in that. It must rest in Yahweh's compassion. So to conclude here, our compassionate God sent all the judges, both the major and the minor ones, with their diverse backgrounds and failures to rescue his people. Because of his compassion, he rescued them. And despite God's compassion, his covenant people continued to fumble their worship of him with further idolatry. In fact, compounding their idolatry upon idolatry. That's what sin does. It compounds, multiplies. And so they fumble their worship of God with further idolatry, which leads to a widespread oppression upon the people of Israel. And now, even when we see this hint that their repentance has gone a level deeper, a deeper level than ever before, we still doubt that it will have any kind of lasting impact upon the nation. But thankfully, we place our hope in a compassionate God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, whom all of these judges point forward to And it was only Jesus Christ who could finally and fully defeat sin and death and who rose again for our victory. And so let us worship him for that deliverance. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the 